Madam Clerk, will you give us a roll call? Thank you, Member Ashby, Member Guerra, Here. and Chair Harris. All present, uh, will you stand and join me in the pledge? Salute. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. <clears throat> so, very good. We have about 45 minutes to move through the agenda, and I think we can do that easily. What I'd like to do is reorder the items and take number two first, and just for my committee members to say that at the Regional Water Authority, Pam Tobin was uh, unanimously accepted as a uh, recommendation uh, to, to serve as Aqua Vice President. I certainly have no objective and apparently, I mean objection, and nobody else had a problem with that either amongst all the various uh, regional water agencies. So if somebody wanted to float a motion to move this forward, I am open to it. I'll move the item. Moved by uh, Committee Member Guerra. And I'm happy seconding since I know her. And all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Very good. We'll move on to item number one, which is a really, uh, I think, a fascinating discussion about the Regional Groundwater Bank. And Mr. Schwartz, if you could come up and educate us, please. Mr. Rob Schwartz. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, let me put up my presentation here. So while that's, that's loading up, thank you very much. Uh, this is an initiative that we've been working on for several years in the basin. I'm very excited. It it's, still has a couple years worth of planning, still heavy lift, uh, but we think it's really coming to fruition. Uh, so we really believe that we can improve, improve the water supply reliability of this region by creating something that we're referring to as the Sacramento Regional Water Bank. So last year you had a, a briefing from Michelle Carey, uh, talked a lot about conjunctive use in the basin and how it's been successful in helping us to stabilize groundwater elevations, make them very sustainable for our future. Uh, what I'm really talking about today are two sub-basins that are they're defined by the Department of Water Resources, the North American, South American sub-basin. And the city basically straddles those two basins with the American River running right in between them. And as was discussed previously, the, the basin was overdrafted it's, it's a condition where you're using more groundwater than is being replenished naturally. So for a period of decades, we had drawdowns by about two feet per year, and it certainly wasn't sustainable. And finally, in the mid-1990s, certain agencies that were reliant on groundwater began accepting surface water. That's what we call in-lieu conjunctive use. So when it's wet, they take surface water, and it allows the groundwater basin to replenish naturally. And you can see in the mid-1990s, we not only stopped that decline, we actually started to see water elevations coming up by about a foot and a half, uh, by about a half a foot per year, excuse me. And you can even see during the last drought, which was the, some of the driest hydrology we'd ever experienced in the state, the groundwater basin actually stayed in a very good status and has recovered since that time. So the conjunctive use that we've been practicing has really already paid off in dividends. But we really can't ignore the future. We have to look out longer term, and we're going to have changes in our hydrology. Uh, so if you look at the figure on the right, these are the three reservoir systems that we traditionally in the state have relied on. Locally rely on a snowpack that falls in the winter, slowly melts throughout the spring, is somewhat regulated by surface water reservoirs. You can see that tiny little dot on there represents our local reservoir, Folsom. 
And then you can see the groundwater basin. It's really the largest of all these systems. And in the future, as this snowpack becomes less reliable, less of it, uh, it will happen in a more flashy way so that water is going to come and move through the system. You get the impression that the surface water is not going to be able to handle that. It's really the groundwater basin that represents our, our best hope for adapting to a future. It's a basin, it's a storage reservoir system that we can effectively manage. We've already shown that we can do it, and there's a lot more opportunity to do more. On the left, I want to point out to you, these are storage levels in Folsom Lake. And it, it shows a couple of things. This starts in the water year in October. Uh, basically, in the late winter, we have to evacuate storage from Folsom for flood control purposes. And then you can see throughout the spring, water elevations go up. So the solid light blue in the background are average storage numbers on a monthly basis in Folsom since the, the reservoir became operational around 1956. The darker blue line uh, shows information from one of our recent studies that since 2001 through 2016 at the time, actually our, our levels have already begun to change. We have an average on a monthly basis of 65,000 acre feet less water in Folsom <coughs> Reservoir than we did. So climate change isn't some theoretical exercise looking out to the future for impacts. We've actually been observing them over the last couple of decades. In part, it's hydrology, but it also has to do with the fact that Folsom Reservoir serves a third function. In addition to flood control and water supply, it's a water quality reservoir. So Folsom is increasingly called upon to release water to maintain water quality in the delta. And as you can imagine, in the future with, with increasing sea level rise, that's gonna continue to happen. So it really behooves us understanding that the surface water reservoir is gonna become less reliable for us, again, to rely much more significantly on that, on that reservoir that we can manage, that being the groundwater basin. So if you look at it in that context, on the left, this is called a groundwater contour map. And really what it's showing you, just like with the topographic, topographic map, uh, we have these cones of depression, as we call them. Think of them as a bowl. But I just showed you that they're now stable. So you can look at that as sort of the base of a reservoir system. And we can continue to do more recharge. Our studies calculate that we have about 1.8 million acre feet of available storage space. That's almost twice the size of Folsom Reservoir underneath our feet. And we also have a lot of opportunity to put water in that. So I talked about successfully how we've been managing through in-lieu conjunctive use. On the right, this is annual pumping by month for each of the agencies in the basin. And the city of Sacramento is one of those. So what it's saying in January, you can see we're pumping almost 8,000 acre feet. And when we're at a period where we're spilling water out of Folsom Reservoir, which we did for almost five consecutive months, we should be trying to shut off as many groundwater wells as we can and deliver surface water during those times. So there's a lot of available storage potential as well uh, as a source. So with all those factors in mind, over the last three years, we, we completed a fairly extensive uh, technical study and, and resulting in something called a regional water reliability plan. I believe the council has seen a copy of that on a recent council action. Uh, we decided to ask two fundamental questions. If we, as a region, tried to operate all of our systems today based on existing inner ties, existing surface water treatment plants, existing groundwater, how much more surface water could we use in wet years? And how much more groundwater could we, could we use as a backup supply during dry years? We also asked, asked a second question for agencies, what are you planning on doing in the next 10 years that might improve that? So increasing the size of inner ties or building new inner ties, booster pumps to move water from one part of a system to another, 
new groundwater wells, et cetera. So each of the agencies self-identified what they were planning to do, and of course the city was a, a key participant in the study as well. So we considered a host of factors, and, and the first one that I think was most surprising was fluoridation. So if you want to do this on a long-term basis, it matters whether your system fluoridates or not. And so we had to honor those practices, because whether you do or don't, you're very passionate on, on one side or the other. So you can see on the right that we actually split the region up into these four areas based on whether those systems fluoridated or not, so that we could operate on a long-term basis without having that be a concern. We honored existing water rights, so we didn't assume that you could move water from an area that was beyond your place of use. We looked at surface water treatment plant capacity. So in July or August, when you're operating at a maximum to meet your own customer demands, there may not be additional capacity available, so even in a wet year, to provide additional surface water to your neighbor. We also looked at groundwater production capacity. So in dry years, what could we rely on? Some agencies do meet 100% of their demands with groundwater. They have, in addition to that, they have some excess capacity available. So they could distribute that and move it out to their neighbors. The one constraint that we didn't consider, and it's sort of ironic because it's the biggest barrier to practicing conjunctive use, is the actual cost of the water. So what were the results of all those analyses? I have tables and tables and tables of graphs and such. Uh, I think it boils down to these two. Um, on the opportunity side, we looked at wet years and said if we reoperated today's system, we could push an additional 63,000 acre feet of surface water out and offset groundwater demand in those wet years. That's the dark blue on the left. On top is a light blue. That says in the next 10 years, if we constructed some planned facilities, we could increase that by almost 50%. So we could be pushing out an additional 90,000 acre feet of surface water into those urban systems that we just showed you. That's, a, that's almost the demand of the city of Sacramento on an annual basis. So very substantial recharge that we could be doing uh, with this program. And conversely, in dry years, we could be using an additional 57,000 acre feet of, of groundwater. And when we do that, that leaves in those dry times water available in the surface water system, which provides benefit to the environment as well. In addition to that, in another 10 years, we could add more than 50% to that. We could be extracting over 90,000 acre feet of groundwater over and above what we currently do to meet local demands in a sustainable way. So again, the barriers for today's operations is typical. These aren't precise numbers, but it's typical that that cost differential, if you're gonna switch from one source of supply to the next, and the city has these wholesale, wholesale retail relationships with its customers, um, it's about 300 acre feet. And that, that's a pretty expensive differ, uh, difference locally. Uh, for the new facilities, we estimate those capital costs at about $288 million. So again, these are fairly substantial barriers, especially when you're looking at a system that today, if I look at a hydrograph that I showed you on the first slide, things look pretty good. Uh, so it's kind of hard to really think down the road and, and make these difficult decisions to get this financing or to overcome these cost barriers. So in steps the concept of a water bank uh, to serve that function. So when I talk about a water bank, I'm talking about two different things. Um, the first one is, is are what are called federally recognized water banks. So in 1992, the Central Valley Project Improvement Act was passed. It dedicated 700,000 acre feet of water to the environment. To do that, they pulled water from contractors. So to mitigate that impact, they allowed contractors to bank some of their surface water, if it was a wet year, outside of their service areas, in a recognized groundwater basin. And so in the San Joaquin Valley, there are about a dozen of these water banks. You may have heard of the Kern Water Bank before, or a semi-tropic 
Those are some of the better known ones. A big advantage to doing that is that you can actually store it for a long period of time. So if you have 20 years remaining on a contract with Bureau of Reclamation, you can actually store it in the groundwater basin for up to 20 years and recover it at some future date. And that's a very substantial benefit because if you have a contract with Reclamation today, you either use it right now or you don't. There is no storage. You can't carry it over to the next year. So this concept of a groundwater bank uh, creates a lot of potential benefit. So we have some local agencies with bureau contracts, but we have a lot of agencies outside the region that would be very interested in this reservoir system that we have and that would represent great benefit to them, great value. The other concept of banking is the State Department of Water Resources beginning, I believe, in 1991 as a, as a result of the 87 and 92 drought, uh, started facilitating these one-year short-term transfers. So they created a, a water bank or, or water market. And uh, they've developed a set of rules around that. And those are more single-year transfers, what I'd refer to as sort of a spot market. And there's a lot of, uh, lot of variability to that market. There are markets that have borne up to $1,200 an acre foot at the peak of the drought. Um, some that have borne $200 an acre foot. And as, as we talked about here, this barrier of $300 an acre foot, we wouldn't be very interested in a, in in a short-term spot market that was, that was about, at about $200 an acre foot. Um, so we're really trying to develop an accounting system that will accommodate both of these types of transfers. The city participated in one in 2018, and I'm going to give you a, a quick review of that. I know your staff have, have also talked to you about that. So if we set up an accounting system, this is how it would work. This is a fairly complicated slide, but we would develop a set of rules on how we would store and recover water, when we could do it, so that we ensure we have a long-term sustainable groundwater basin, but also one that has a lot of opportunity to participate in these markets. So on the bottom, I'm actually showing real hydrology from 2004 um, through 2013. So 2004, for example, was an average year. In an average year, we wouldn't really do much. Uh, we're really not going to take much action to, to move off of the current supply scenario that we have. But in a wet year, we want to maximize the amount of recharge that we can do. So you can see the blue bar. Uh, we take our first action in that second year. Now, behind the blue bar uh, is, a, is a light blue color that's showing cumulative storage as a result of those actions. There's also a gold bar. A gold bar is water that is committed to the basin. We call that a, a loss factor or a basin mitigation factor. So anytime you put water in, you're going to ensure that you're going to leave some in. You will never take out that component. So that blue line stays there. That is to be determined through additional technical work that we're currently doing today. We're developing a modeling uh, tool to run scenarios on these storage and recovery activities, and that will help us determine how much does that loss factor have to be. It's pretty common in, in banks in the San Joaquin Valley for those numbers to range from 5 to up to 20%. Um, some even go higher uh, as, as through time. So again, you can see that we're building an account two wet years consecutive. In the third year, it's a dry year. We start recovering from that account, and that accumulative balance keeps cut, starts to come down. But you can see the gold bar, again, doesn't change because it's been committed to the basin. We have a second dry year, and finally a third year. And you can see that we run out of that light blue, that cumulative storage. We cease operations. And, and, and partners that participate in banks like this from outside areas understand that there are rules like this built in. And so these would be part of that, that commitment. Uh, again, you can see then we start to build those balances through time. And you can see at the end, we have a fairly healthy amount of water that's been committed to the basin. And 
still available cumulative storage, banked water. So this would be the type of system that we would set up to ensure we have a sustainable groundwater basin, but that one that creates opportunities for these recovery periods to participate in either that long-term or short-term market. So the city did participate, as I mentioned, in 2018. And the city, I think, focused on, on your role and you worked with Sacramento Suburban Water District, but there were actually three other agencies that were pumping groundwater as well. Uh, we thought it was important to combine these assets of the region into a single transfer to make ourselves sort of more attractive uh, to the rest of the basin. So we actually had a total of 60 production wells that were pumping and, and one of my roles as the groundwater management agency, uh, the, the red dots you can see up there were to have monitoring wells, dedicated monitoring wells that are around the basin that we've been monitoring for a long period of time to look at during that course of that transfer, how was the basin responding and to have a plan if it wasn't going well um, to have these operations change up. I can tell you though, the, the results were fantastic. The basin uh, behaved very well and has already recovered um, to higher than the elevations that we experienced in 2018. So this table shows all the agencies that participated and, and the way that you're judged by the state for a transfer is they say, how much do you currently pump? Because we're only gonna give you credit for over and above what you're doing to, what you do to meet your typical needs. So these cumulative agencies in this July through September period in that three month window, uh, traditionally pump about 7,000 acre feet. During the transfer, they pumped 17,000 acre feet, almost 18, and were given credit for 10,000 acre feet of transferred water. And so this made these transfers more attractive to the buyer. There are a lot of upfront costs associated with this. Uh, so you can see in the middle, that's CWD is Carmichael Water District. Their part in this transfer was only 358 acre feet. They would not have been very appealing um, to a buyer. So by consolidating our assets together in this coordinated way, it made us more appealing to, to the buyers. So we think that this is a, a nicely proven concept. Now each agency had its individual contracts, uh, so that was, that was up, up to you all to do, uh, but we were able to consolidate and, and provide this regional asset that I think made us more appealing. So this water bank, again, I mentioned we still have a couple of years worth of planning, a lot of technical work, a lot of environmental work to really show that this is going to, to be successful. We need to work with a lot of stakeholders um, to make sure that they're comfortable with, with having these types of operations going forward. But what I'm excited about is, is really you can start this today. It's not like a dam where you have to fully construct a facility before you can start operating it. We already have a reservoir system in place and it's simply re-operating it that will allow us to start doing this tomorrow uh, or in two years when our planning's done. So you can see that we really start sort of with this municipal in-lieu program that I've been describing to you. Um, there are also opportunities for municipal direct. And what I mean by that is we're evaluating aquifer storage and recovery. Um, so there are opportunities to do direct recharge into the basin. So the geology and most of the basin uh, is really not very conducive to having ponds for recharge. There's a reason we grow rice here. Uh, but we have looked at opportunities for direct recharge. The city of Roseville operates about six uh, ASR wells currently. Uh, over the last, I think, three to four months, they used three of those to inject about 1,000 acre feet of water into the groundwater basin. So they've, they've been analyzing that over the last several months. We're also looking in the future uh, to recycle in lieu opportunities. So the South County Ag Program will be delivering water down to existing groundwater users down near the Cosumnes River. There's opportunities to account for that water being put into the system. 
There's also flood MAR. MAR is managed aquifer recharge. So we're working with SAFCA on a proposed project that looks at potentially diverting water out of Folsom, down the Folsom South Canal, and into the Cosumnes Basin, which really could use that, that water uh, for recharge. So those are opportunities that we're looking at. And then ultimately, when you look at those two sub-basins in the Sutter and Western Placer portion and the South American portion, there is a, a minimum of 300,000 acre-feet of independent agricultural pumping going on today. So the opportunities as we, as we could potentially grow through time are tremendous. So it's something that can benefit both the region, the basin, uh, and it can also help benefit outside uh, from the region as well. So that is uh, the concept that I want to introduce you today. Do you have any questions? So I'd just like to say, I think that's a really lucid presentation and you went through a lot of information quickly. I think it's really helpful for people to understand, you know, all the concepts that you brought forward. Um, really important stuff in terms of water security moving forward. Uh, the groundwater transfer that we voted on and uh, happened couple years, well actually it was just last year. Um, very successful overall, wouldn't you say? Yes. And so, so from that we garnered, I forget how much money, but we can use it to rebuild our wells. Right, I, I believe the city's portion was about 1.8 million yeah. um, that you netted, and you invested in uh, water efficiency for some of your disadvantaged customers, and committed most of that funding to uh, some of, the, of your well improvements. Did any of that money get used for pumped waste systems? I believe, I believe that's, that's what it's dedicated. It's been committed for that purpose. Perfect. Yes, and in addition to that, uh, we are pursuing a Proposition 1 Integrated Water Management grant. Uh, we had a meeting on that with the State Department of Water Resources just last week, and we're pursuing about a million dollars to also help that particular project, that pumped waste. So the money you've set aside can be part of the local cost share, and we're also pursuing grant funding to help out with that. So one of the, the biggest pieces of the puzzle here in terms of moder monitoring is understanding contamination plumes and how when we recharge the aquifer, you know, we start moving problem areas around. So what's going to happen with that moving forward? So in the past, we have already modeled um, some of that. We know these major plumes, and we understand what type of operations they have in place uh, to maintain those plumes where they are today. And so we, again, as I said in the past, we've actually already modeled that. And the new tool that we're developing now uh, will be a much more sophisticated one and we're gonna be able to remodel that. At the time, we didn't see any major kind of movement because you have to remember that when you do this in a conjunctive fashion, it really means you're only gonna be uh, pumping maybe three years out of 10. You're gonna be putting more surface water in in three years out of 10. So on the whole, your water levels should stay stable over the long term. And, and so that's actually gonna just kind of keep it where it's at. I'm not quite sure if that makes full sense to you. Uh, but, but in addition to that, we do have dedicated monitoring wells, and that would be part of our monitoring and mitigation program as we're operating to, to make sure that that contaminant's not moving. Questions from committee members? I have one more, uh, you know, the, the Groundwater Basin, the North Basin, clearly has a much higher capacity. Your first slide, I think, in 1955, you know, uh, the amount of water. So, so there's more capacity for the groundwater to recharge. Is the geology such that we could ever attain that level of water storage underground again? Not particularly, and I'm not sure that we, we really 
want or need to do that. I think you should look at it today as you have that base now of that new reservoir system, mm -hmm. and everything should operate above and below it, right? Because there's, there's not a whole lot to, uh, I think, benefit of trying to fully fill that basin again, right? So it's that, it's that operations that are gonna move from where you are today. So of that 1.8 million acre feet, it's about a million acre feet in the North American basin, and about 800,000 of that is in the South American subbasin. So there's a fair amount of opportunity in, in both of those. Now again, as I said, if you start to expand into those agricultural operations, and at some point are able to deliver water, you will start to see, I think, much more substantial use of that and, 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 and that situation that you're describing. But you know, when you're looking at this operations in the, in the urban area, mm -hmm. If you store 60,000 acre feet in three years out of 10 and recover 60,000 acre feet in three years out of 10, you're not really putting a whole lot of, of water over, over and above where you are today. So operationally, even though you have 1.8 million acre feet of space, you, you wouldn't really just do it by, by the way that you're operating today, right? It's very, very small annual increments that you'd be operating from. Understood. It's, it's uh, my hoarding instinct kicking in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks so much, Rob. Great. Appreciate Thank it. You. I just did have one comment. Oh, yeah, here. go ahead. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I, I think the bigger, the big takeaway here is, is uh, the fact that um, we can do this now versus what it might take for us if we start looking at uh, other, other surface storages and depending solely on that. And, uh, and the other issue is that I think why our prudent planning now for um, groundwater is it, it frees up and gives us uh, uh, more variability with uh, the Lake Folsom to manage both the delta quality uh, water issues uh, and also uh, flood control issues without it being a, a, a risk to our availability of water because we've already done our, um, our, our prudent uh, effort of storing water and working together as a region. So I think this is exciting and thank you for the report. Okay, our next item is uh, water rights and water supply regulatory processes. And I'm not sure who's presenting. Good afternoon, uh, Chair Harris and members of the committee. I'm Wes Miliband as outside counsel for the city. Wonderful, thank, thank you. you. Welcome, Wes. And thank you. So I, I will move, or at least try to move pretty quickly, uh, giving our scheduling purposes, and then some of this information is familiar from prior presentations, but nonetheless here is a bit of a refresher as well as provide context for what's going on. And the what's going on of what we'd like to focus on here this afternoon really relates to the ongoing state water board process with the water quality control plan update and the related voluntary agreement process. Quickly though, I'd like to just identify a couple of comments about the city's water rights and entitlements, risks to those things, and then really get into the substance of where we are, some of the issues that are taking place and where we think we might be going in the coming months. As you know, the city has a robust and diverse portfolio of water rights with a pre-14 right, as well as four permitted rights from the State Water Board on the American River and one on the Sacramento River. There is a U.S. Bureau of Reclamation Operating Agreement from 1957, which really speaks to how reclamation is to operate its facilities to ensure that the state water rights held by the city are available to the city for diversions. And of course, there are groundwater rights, and we heard much about uh, that topic from Mr. Swartz, which I'll touch on again in a few minutes related to item number one from the agenda. Those risks uh, we know have to deal with climate change, and then of course, uh, the regulatory landscape at the state level. 
as to how those circumstances could change and what impacts or implications there could, could be to the city's supplies and its water rights. So one solution is, as you know, that we've been working on for a couple of years now are the voluntary agreements. And whether that turns out to be the solution, I frankly could not stand here and tell you, yes, it will be. But there's a lot of good work being done by a lot of folks um, across different groups, which I would call the state team, the environmental community, and the water user community statewide, as well as efforts um, that are ongoing with reclamation. So the control plan, as you know, really looks to protect beneficial uses. There's often the focus on fisheries and riparian habitat and how to improve particularly conditions for listed species right here on our portion of the American River dealing with um, salmonids and how to improve their rearing and spawning habitats. But under the law, the control plan update has to look to all beneficial uses, including those that are exercised by the city and other water users throughout the state. And the way the plan update, whether through the voluntary agreements or not, is implemented is done by way of water rights. So this regulatory proceeding at the state board is what tethers directly to the city's water rights and what contributions can or should be made in order to fulfill the regulatory process while protecting the city's supplies that it needs for today and tomorrow. So as I mentioned, the state team is being one of these groups. It's made up of multiple agencies. Uh, over the last couple of years, it's primarily been with California Department of Fish and Wildlife as well as the Natural Resources Agency. The state water board has more recently um, particularly in this calendar year, become an active participant with its management so that we're, we're really in a position now to be able to get state perspectives. And under the prior governor's administration and the current administration with secretaries Blumenfeld and Crowfoot, uh, there is regular engagement on an every three-week process in which uh, the secretaries meet with principals. Sometimes the attorneys are in the room, but more or less the flies on the wall to hear and inform and receive comments or even direction from the secretaries as to what they're seeing as next steps in the voluntary agreement process. The water users, of course, on the American River, we have a very cohesive um, set of agencies and partnerships that have been very active even well before the control plan update process, and we continue to do the work that we've done before and put it into this process to try to get to a mutually agreeable solution. The environmental community over the last um, nine months or so, given the change in state administrations, has become an active participant, and there are a number of issues we're still trying to work through, um, primarily with that group. And then reclamation, of course, uh, I think when I last stood here a few months ago, reported on positive discussions taking place with reclamation, and I can affirm that continues to be with regular engagement meetings and from senior level management, often meeting with city representatives and other regional representatives to where, I'll get into this in a few minutes, um, just a little a little bit more detail, but it's very positive and there's been a lot of movement. Ultimately, if these voluntary agreements are to come to uh, close to finality, uh, there would ultimately need to be that approval from local governing bodies, of course, including the city's governing body and the state water board itself. So really the American River Voluntary Agreement, uh, this might be providing a little bit more substance than I've spoken about or others have in prior committee meetings. There's essentially three components. There are flow measures, non-flow measures, and funding mechanisms. So here on this slide for flow measures, we're looking at two primary sources of contributions that are intended to contribute in furtherance of the control plan update to assist with the fisheries and the health of the delta. And what that really means is reservoir reoperation by our upstream partners, Placer County Water Agency, El Dorado Irrigation District, Georgetown 
Divide Public Utility District and Forest Hill Public Utility District, where they're, they've put out there on the table, and these are public documents, that 10,000 acre feet of water up to six times over 15 years of a 15-year voluntary agreement would be made available in those above and below normal years. So when there's a little bit more water, as Mr. Swartz a few minutes ago was talking about, we should be able to put that down into the river and create um, really the circumstance where we have this conjunctive use operation that really works for everyone. Should work for the environment, should work for the water users and the regulatory um, agencies. The other component that we're centrally part to is the groundwater substitution component. And so that's what Sacramento County Water Agency, city, and others uh, within our region where there's essentially up to 10,000 acre feet of water up to six times over the 15 years, but in the critical and dry years to make that water available for the very reasons we just heard about from Mr. Swartz, being that that's what creates that balance for the drier times and the wetter times to be able to use that source of supply to meet those various needs, whether locally here for municipal uses or for this regulatory proceeding process for fisheries and habitat. I also have as a little sub-sub-bullet um, in there up to an additional 10,000 acre feet for reservoir reoperation, as well as up to an additional 20,000 acre feet um, of water if there is a groundwater bank for groundwater substitution transfers. And what that really means is the funding mechanisms, which I'll, which I'll touch on in a moment, are a key component to that. It also depends on just having the right conditions to be able to do that. But that, that's essentially um, the universe of flow measures that the American River region has put out there as part of a voluntary agreement deal. As for non-flow measures, specifically for the lower American River, is what we're looking to do is to add 50 acres of spawning habitat, as well as 150 acres of rearing habitat. So that essentially the fish have a place um, both as a nursery and a breeding ground and to live to become robust enough to make it back to the ocean and live their natural course. The key ingredients to this, of course, is what you've heard of, spoken of in the past as the modified flow management standard and different names. The, the name label might change from time to time. Um, I would say today it's the planning minimum, but the heart and the substance remain the same with these key ingredients of having minimum release flows, temperature management, and, and minimum reservoir levels in Folsom that all work together to create a reliability for both temperatures for the fish as well as supply reliability for the American River entities, including the city. The funding component uh, has a lot more complexity than what I could put here or have time to speak of today, but I think essentially it breaks down to flow and non-flow measures. For the flow measures, there is a certain amount of funding that we're saying is needed in order to do uh, certain projects. So for the existing facilities and that up to 10,000 acre feet, that's obviously based on existing facilities. For new facilities, we would need state funding from either state funds or from um, a proposition, from a bond. There needs to be kind of that cohesive effort with the state agencies that would be central to this to, to make sure uh, we can do what it is we're saying we could do if the funding is there. On the non-flow side, this is a rather creative, um, I think creative solution that's being developed or was developed which is, is really having a structural and habitat science fund that would be statewide for the VA deals, but have it so that the American River region, we would be paying essentially $2 into that fund to then have a $1.75 return so that we can do the projects 
that we're saying we would do, the 50 acres and the 150 acres for rearing and spawning habitat. <coughs> Moving on to uh, really where we are and frankly what I see as some of the key topics and, and of course issues, sub-issues, nuances, discussions, debates, et cetera, that are taking place really have to do namely with the first point there about state modeling. So the state as a state essentially has two models that look to surface hydrology. And there's calcium on the one hand, there's SAC land that the State Water Board has developed. And both of those models are very different and very different from what it is that we're trying to do here on the American as well as other tributaries that are part of this process. And what I mean by that is the non-flow measures modeling the temperature and looking to the benefits that would come from what we're seeing would benefit the fisheries. And so the state really is trying to figure out how do we reconcile these different models to, to see what the benefits of this voluntary agreement would be. That's a very live issue. The secretary themselves acknowledged that. October 15th was put out a few months ago as a date in which the secretaries were saying that's a go, no go, meaning that's when we think we will know if there's enough of a there there to continue on in this voluntary agreement process, continue with the CEQA process at the State Water Board, versus we don't think there's enough of a there there, so we're going to retract and presumably default back to the regulatory process before the State Board. That date has not officially been moved, but what is clear is a perception that it's not ready. Um, the modeling's not ready to know if there's enough of a there there. So I suspect um, later next month, uh, hopefully we will know the state's view on whether they think these voluntary agreements, namely the American River Voluntary Agreement, uh, provides enough from their perspective of potential benefit to rival against what the State Water Board perspective has been, which is all about flows and not impaired flows. So one quick note, because I know we're running short on time, but uh, the Bureau, I did mention positive discussions, the planning minimums being discussed. There's public documentation for uh, various different uh, reclamation processes that are live and underway, but the planning minimum is out there as being in a range of 250,000 to 300,000 acre feet um, in Folsom, with really a lot of the details now being the live discussion points as to how does that early year forecasting take place, to what level of collaboration with the American River parties, what influence could the American River parties have over those discussions as reclamation has to meet its congressional directives as well as its contractors demands that are south of Yalta. And then we're also talking in a different, what I would call different component of, we get through the forecasting process, now we're in the summer months and there could be a shortage. What do we do? Whether it's reclamation or we collectively as American River parties. So we're actively discussing those issues and working through those and I'll pause there for any questions or comments. Wow, well, thank you. That was a pretty quick synopsis of the voluntary agreements. Um, any questions or comments? Just wish the best of luck on October 15th, if that happens to be the actual date. Thank you, sir. I give or take a little bit, as we, we lawyers yeah, like to say. Cross my fingers, but uh, you know, it's a really complex set of negotiations with an awful lot of players. So um, we'll await the outcome. Thank if you, it sir. does affect our water future very directly. Thank you, Wes. Thank Appreciate you. It. Have a good day. And our last item of the day is to hear from Mr. Tom Goring about the American River Habitat Restoration um, Program that he's got going as we speak. Hi, thanks very much, uh, Mr. Chair, members of the committee. 
uh, Tom Goring, Executive Director of the Sacramento Water Forum. I'm, uh, I'm not going to do a classic PowerPoint. I'm going to do a video and a photo. Um, and while the video is going, I'm going I'm to switch back and forth between narrating the video and giving some additional background. And here comes the first photo. So while it's coming, let me give you the background. So this is the eighth uh, project of this type that we've done in the Lower American River. These projects are commitments under the Water Forum Agreement, and, they are, um, and we've been able to significantly leverage local contributions, not only from the city of Sac, but other water agencies in the region, with uh, state and federal funding. The project we're literally doing out there right now, we'll, we'll watch the video, um, is about a million dollar project. Um, about 900,000 of that is federal funded um, by surcharges on agricultural water deliveries and, uh, and power contracts. Uh, this project represents about 14,000 uh, cubic yards of moved gravel. What you see right there is construction of something we call a side channel. This project is designed to provide two different types of habitat spawning habitat, which is like, um, like the nursery, and rearing habitat, which is like, um, is like a kindergarten. The side channel is rearing habitat. So um, after it is finished, um, we will have carved a little channel where there used to be a prehistoric channel in that part of the river, and it will provide a place for tiny fish to grow and become bigger fish so that they can head out to the Pacific Ocean and continue their life cycle. Um, we've had a little bit of uh, positive press um, on the projects this year. We had um, two of the um, TV media out there. We had a little article in the Bee this weekend. Um, it, one of the hardest questions for me to answer when a reporter gives it to me is, why are you doing these projects? Um, and, and we're so involved, we, we, we have to stop and take stock and ask ourselves, why are we really doing these projects? Um, it, in particular, because these projects are literally taking place right across the river from a hatchery. So why not just spend a million dollars on the hatchery? Well, the answer is because naturally spawned fish, natural spawning salmon are more genetically resilient and they're more robust than hatchery-grown fish. And our society has made a um, very clear statement through our set of laws and regulations that they value natural spawners more than hatchery fish. In fact, um, the federal, federal and State Endangered Species Act call for doubling of natural, um, natural spawned fish, but not for hatchery fish. So that's why doing these kinds of habitat projects are so important. What you see in your video right now is um, spoils from the side channel being dumped um, over into the floodplain. And in a minute, you will see um, a... Uh, uh, um, a device called a power screen, which is taking 100-year-old mine tailings and sorting them into the appropriate sizes um, that can be used for the salmon for, uh, for making their nests. Um, I'm going to see if I can connect. Yeah, there's the power screen. Raw gravel goes in. It gets sorted into three sizes. The size in the foreground there is, uh, will be dumped in the river um, you know, in the next run the next uh, loop of the trucks in order to make the spawning habitat. Let me see if I connect these projects to sort of the bigger context. Um, really great presentation by Wes Miliband a minute ago on the voluntary agreement. The voluntary agreement as proposed by the American River parties 
calls for expanding our planned uh, spawning uh, projects over the next 15 years from a planned 50 acres to a proposed 200 acres. So a four times increase in the amount of, um, of, um, of spawning and rearing projects that we're proposing to do. When you look at this project that is literally happening out there today, what this tells you is that the commitment we're making is real. Um, one of the concerns we've heard from the NGO community and from some of our state partners is, hey, you're making a commitment to build this habitat, but you know, it's only a 15-year agreement. How, how, how do we know you can get out there in time and get it all done? Well, because we're doing it. We're geared up, we're making it work, um, and, um, and I can tell you that four weeks from now, after we've pulled out of the river, after the salmon have um, come up the river to spawn, you will literally see salmon out there on this new gravel making nests and laying eggs. Um, I think that's, uh, there's a little bit more in the video, but I can stop there and answer any questions. Oh, can, Tiffany, can I do the picture now? So Tom, this yep. location is Sailor Bar, Negro Bar? It is Sailor Bar. Sailor Bar. Right across from the hatchery, Sailor Bar Park. Yeah. Okay. So there's obviously a direct nexus here between the habitat restoration and water security and the way we, we manage our water supply flows. Uh, I think so, um, and not just because you pay me to work on these projects, um, but also because, um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be on the periphery of the voluntary agreement negotiation process, and I can tell you that this region has a really good reputation, a good reputation elsewhere in the state a good, a good reputation at the State Water Resources Control Board and our fish agencies. Reputation as folks who've been progressive and um, really doing a lot of great work to be stewards of our fishery as well as our water supply. This is a picture of our equipment operators. So uh, I told you it's a million dollar project. About 40% of that cost goes to renting these big tractors. Um, but the tractors have to be run by someone, and those folks are staff of the city of Sacramento. They work for the Department of Utilities in our drainage division. Um, here in another month, they'll be out mucking out drainage channels, making sure the rest of us don't flood. But for this month, they're out there helping the river. Um, their time is being paid for by federal grant dollars, so it's a little infusion of dollars into the Department of Utilities. And I can tell you that to a person, these gentlemen love these projects. They know that they're out there doing something good and they're delighted to do it. And we're delighted to have them. Excellent. Thank you, Tom. Great presentation. Comments? Uh, yes, thank you. I, I just think, uh, you know, it's just, it reminds me of what kind of a gem we have out there and uh, the fact that we're helping with uh, the, uh, some of the issues that we have. I'm sure our anglers are quite uh, uh, happy to hear about that. And, and then hearing the issue, I think what we've seen because of climate change and, and some of the, the salmon impacts in, say, in Alaska and whatnot, where we've lost a lot of, of uh, the salmon population, even Northern California, I mean, the fact that we're taking a lead on this and making moving, moving it forward, um, good jobs, good environment, uh, and I also love, love, the, love some good fishing, too. So well, thank for, you very much. Thanks for your support. Sounds good. Thank you. Uh, it's a great presentation, and I just wanted to thank you, Anne, too, for your contributions since getting here. And 
uh, one of my favorite projects in the region is, uh, you know, the one that connects us to Yolo County. And I sometimes think we're getting there with some of our habitat restoration here where we're finding multiple purposes for uh, pieces of land. Obviously, they use theirs for farming and restoration and birds and, and flood control and all of that. But I think really thanks to Jeff's leadership on this council, this restoration piece has become more than just restoration and more than just flood control too. And that's really, I think that's when we're at our best, when we can find three or four different ways to use the same piece of land. It is necessary in Sacramento, whether it's a park that can flood or a farmer's land that uh, can produce more than one thing for our region. So thank you for the presentation and thank you for your hard work. Bill, your team always, and Jeff, your leadership from the dais, I think, is, is really paying off. So good work. Thank you. Well, you know, we're, we're doing an awful lot of projects, like the South County Recycled Water Project, uh, the YOLO Bypass Cash Through Partnership, which is starting to develop. All of these things tie together in our total concept of how we manage water and biology in our region. And I'd have to say that all of these people here in the hall today are big players, you know, in making all the pieces fit. So thank you all for the work you do. For me, you know, it's really fascinating and uh, I, I love being able to participate in it. So thank you for all your efforts. And that being said, we are adjourned. Yeah, it's the...